Welcome. We're so glad that you're here today. Today we're going to continue um, talking about the church, and we're going to talk about the ways in which the church engages in our community. Have you ever walked into a place that was completely new to you? New sights, new smells, new people, new ways of doing things? Probably all of us have had that experience at one point or another. I grew up overseas, so I moved quite a bit in my childhood. And and so I had that experience quite a bit. And I remember one day specifically when we were moving to the little village of Wonkifong. And Wonkifong was a rural village, is a rural village in Guinea, West Africa. And I remember being in this African bush taxi with my siblings and my mom and my grandma and we're going down this gravel road and we've entered into this small village and our home that we were staying in that had been given to us was at the very end of the village and so we were driving all the way through to get to this house and as we were driving we were passing these mud brick homes and people were just pouring out of the mud brick homes and pretty soon we had a crowd of kids running after us chasing the car and I remember getting out and feeling a bit overwhelmed by all the commotion and and we had to stand around and just wait because my dad was in our moving truck moving van and and I use that term very loosely behind us and so once I remember getting there, and we had to wait for Dad to get there. And finally, I, we, we started hearing this great commotion approaching us. And we assumed that was the moving van that had arrived to the village. And I wish I had a picture to show you, because this picture of, of our moving van, our moving truck, is, is etched into my memory. And I don't have a picture of, of this actual the actual one that we used. But I asked my older brother, John Mark, to send me a picture of of the taxis in Africa so you get just a little bit of an idea of what it looked like. And it it was kind of like a a little van, so it was bigger than this car, and it was piled high, and that is really nicely, neatly uh, tied off back there. And what I remember the most was stuff hanging off the sides, tied on, and then not only the stuff hanging off the sides, but people. Like, the movers were hanging, like they didn't have enough seats for them, so some of them were hanging off the sides. And so I remember, I remember the moving truck and I remember them arriving. And then I re- just remember standing in the middle of the sea of people. And I remember some of the little kids would come up to me and like touch, touch my arm. And some of them just stood there and looked at me. And I remember as a young child, I was six years old at the time thinking, what is going on? Like, what is going to happen? This place is so different. It's so new. And, and there was a feeling of excitement because there's new opportunities when you enter a place like that. But there's also this feeling of being disoriented and being a little bit overwhelmed. And, and thinking back on my life, I've experienced that feeling multiple times. Uh, more recently, in 2007, I... I got my master's in teaching, and I got my first teaching job. And believe it or not, when I walked into Ruth Livingston Elementary School in Pasco, 
I, I kind of had to like calm myself down because I had that same feeling of both excitement for new opportunity, but also this feeling of being overwhelmed and a little bit disoriented, thinking like, how, do, how does this place work? What are the rules here? What's the language? How do I communicate? What are the kids going to be like? And it's like each place has their rules of engagement, so to speak, their culture, the ways in which they operate. And so today what I want to talk about is the ways in which we as a church engage in our community. We finished the gospel, our series on the gospel of John, and we looked at the life of Jesus. And now we're into this mini-series called The Story Continues. We've talked about the church being gathered, and now we're talking about the church being sent, all revolving around Acts 1, verse 8. But you will receive the pow- you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This idea of being God's witnesses here on earth. By the way, today is Pentecost Sunday, so Acts 2, when the Spirit came down, that's called Pentecost, and 50 days later, uh, the seventh Sunday after um, Easter, it, the church commemorates that time, and today is Pentecost Sunday. Do you say Happy Pentecost? I don't know how that works here. Not often? Well, Happy Pentecost. It's Pentecost Sunday. So I think it's very fitting that we're still talking about the church be, receiving the Spirit and being sent out into the world. So today we're going to be looking at Acts 17. By the way, you can follow along on our screen or you can get out your smartphone as many of us have and follow along on the YouVersion app. It's an app that you can um, download and read the Bible on and also have all the slides for our, for our services here. Um, and by the way, if you brought like, like a Bible, like a paper Bible, Hey, some of, some of us actually have those. You're welcome to look it up in, those, in that Bible, too. So we're starting off in Acts 17, and we're going to look at what Paul's experience in Athens. And Athens was the center of the Greek empire when, when it was at its height, and it had a rich history of, of philosophers, um, Plato and Aristotle, Socrates. They were all from Athens. And at this point in history, when Paul went there, it had lost much of its political power, but it was still a great intellectual center. There's still a lot of places of learning there. There are many, many temples there. The most prominent was the Parthenon, and that was the temple to the goddess Athens, who was the goddess of wisdom and warfare. And then we're also going to read a little bit about, a little bit about the Areopagus, which was a judicial court and also an in, a place for intellectual conversations at Athens. So let's look at Acts 17, verse 16. When Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. 
Then, he t- then they took him and brought him to a, meet- a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. So I get this picture of Paul as he's waiting for his buddies to arrive, that he's, he's rendezvousing there. He's like, well, I'm going to go and check out the city. I'm going to check out Athens. And so he's sightseeing, and he's walking around, and he's asking the question, so how, what's it like here? How are people living what do they believe? How does life work here? And, and verse 16 says that he was greatly distressed when he saw all the idols. He was saddened. He was, he was overwhelmed by the reality of what those idols represented. In fact, an ancient historian wrote about Athens, and scholars estimate that there were over 30,000 idols in different gods represented in that one city alone. And so Paul, having walked the city, having listened to the people, having um, gotten to know what life was like there, he began to talk to people. And I love seeing the variety in Paul's audience. He didn't choose to just talk to one specific type of person. But he has three distinct audiences here. He goes first to the synagogue, to the Jews and to the God-fearing Greeks who believe in one God. And those are the people he probably was most familiar with because he himself, you know, was was a Jew and was a, had been a Pharisee. And then he goes to the marketplace and he speaks to just the ordinary people of that place. And this would be the majority of the people that lived in Athens, people who were polytheistic, meaning they, they worshipped many, many gods and all those idols there. And then as he's standing around talking, some, he's approached by philosophers. And the philosophers were kind of more the educated elite of the day who, who met at the Areopagus. And specifically, the text mentions that he was approached by Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. And it's just interesting to see the diversity there. So Epicureans were more atheist, and they, they sought as their highest pursuit a smooth and pleasant life. So their motto was, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Let's just enjoy, enjoy our life. The Stoic philosophers were pantheists, which means they didn't believe that God was a separate entity, but that everything in the physical world made up God. And so they were marked by um, a certain level of apathy and um, fatalism, where they believed that things would happen, and whatever happens, happens, and there's really nothing, nothing we can do about it. And so these philosophers approached Paul, and they asked him to come and to speak to them. So that's where we pick up the story in verse 22. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I am here to proclaim to you. And so Paul begins 
with a compliment. And reading this text through our culture and our lens, we might not always pick up on the fact that that's a compliment. But he says to them, I see in every way that you are very religious. And sometimes today that's kind of has a negative connotation. But he's, he's complimenting them and he says, you are interested in seeking the divine. And I see that. You're trying, and you're trying really hard. And then he goes to speak of the idol that he saw to an unknown God. And I love the, the translation in the NRSV a little bit better, because even the word, the word ignorant, I don't use that word very much. It does also have a bit of a negative connotation. So I wanted to read to you in, in the NRSV, verse 23. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription, To an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. What you worship as unknown, I am here to proclaim to you. I found it fascinating as I was studying this week. Um, I came across a story that I'd never heard that, that is, is written in some of, of the historical books outside of the Bible, but the historical books about Athens. And in 600 BC, there was a devastating plague that hit the city and many people died. And they were trying to figure out a way to end this disease, to end this plague. And so what they did is they gathered a herd of sheep in the center of the city, and they let the sheep go. And they had people following each sheep. And as the sheep got tired, when the sheep got tired and would lay down, then the people would take the sheep and sacrifice it in that spot to whichever God was near them. So if the sheep walked close to um, the Parthenon, the god Athens, the goddess of, of war and wisdom, and laid down there, then they would take that sheep and they would sacrifice it to Athens. And they followed all the sheep, and some of the sheep laid down in a location that wasn't close to one of their altars, that wasn't close to one of their gods. And so there they sacrificed those sheep and then built an altar there, and with the inscription, to an unknown God. Because they lived in a belief system that was marked by fear, that there's all these gods out there, and we need to appease them, or they will hurt us. And so that's what they were trying to do. And I love how Paul comes in, likely knowing the origins of that, but Paul comes in and, and he doesn't start by attacking their beliefs. He doesn't start by telling them how wrong they are, but rather he starts right where they're at and he offers to tell them about the unknown God. Verse 24. And here's what he says about this unknown God. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands, and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. 
And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. So Paul begins his message by saying, this God that you don't know, he's the creator of everything. He is Lord of heaven and earth. He created everything that you see. On Monday, Mike and I went up to his family's cabin. And Mike and I take Sabbaths regularly where one of us will go up and we'll rest for 24 hours and spend that time in prayer and spend that time in solitude and in nature. And it's just a very filling time for us. And this was the first time that we chose to go together. And normally when I go, I'm just really chill. Like I just stay at the cabin. I sit on the porch, I drink my coffee, I'm, I'm, I just hang out there. But since Micah and I went, we took the Jeep, and we went Jeeping the first day. And then the second day, we took the four-wheelers out, and we did a loop o- around the mountain. And it was, it was absolutely gorgeous. Um, I want to show you a picture from our time out on the mountain. I mean, the, the, the scenery was just amazing. We would, this was the day we took the Jeep up and we took the Jeep up as far up the mountain as we could until we hit, hit snow. And there was this little campsite that we were able to park at and then walk out to this just cliff almost where you can see this whole valley, um, below. Do you notice how there's a wall? to the right there. I think their intention for that wall was that you would stay behind the wall. Um, I think that's how safety walls work when you're like on the edge of a cliff. But we, of course, did not follow those, those rules. Micah's out there trying to take a picture without the land. So he's trying to get, get far enough that he can take a picture out down the valley. But I show this because as we were sitting there, as we were talking and listening listening to the sounds of nature and and as we felt the sun and the breeze, there was this moment where I was just in awe of the beauty, in awe of the complexity of creation. And all too often in our busyness and in our um, cities where we're not outside in nature as much, we forget how remarkable and how awe-inspiring nature is. And it all points to a God who is Lord of heaven and Lord of earth. I love seeing both the creativity and the beauty of God in his creation. And this is what Paul is trying to convey here. He says, God made the world and everything in it. It is this God who gives everyone life and breath and everything else. We sang a song, AJ and Giovanna, thank you for that song. It says, it's your breath in our lungs, so we sing, we pour out our praise, and we pour out our praise to you alone, that God gave us breath and life. And as we see God's creativity and beauty in nature, we see God's creativity and beauty in the diversity of humanity 
that he has created. And so Paul here is speaking to people who are making idols and worshiping what they make. And Paul stands witness to testify that God is the creator, that God cannot be made. And then down in verse 27, I love this. It says, God did this. God created everything, created people. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. We were created to be in relationship with the creator. And that is a beautiful, beautiful thing, that God is not far from any one of us. And then verse 28 He says, for in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. So these two phrases that are in quotations there, in him we live and move and have our being, and we are his offspring. Um, Fascinating history on that. Those phrases actually come from a, a famous Greek poet called Eratus, who wrote a poem in the 300 BCs, describing constellations and describing the weather. And in the introduction of this poem, he, he describes how all things are dependent on Zeus, the god Zeus. And he uses these phrases, in him we live and move and have our being, we are his offsprings. And so Paul goes into the Areopagus, And he wants to share and explain that God is the creator God. And he wants to share about Jesus and the resurrection. And he uses language that is familiar and understandable to them. And so he takes this language that they know and he uses it to share the profound truth that God is their creator. And I love this. I love this so much because so often Christians will go into a new place and start off by telling others how wrong they are and telling others what they need to believe. And, and yes, we have this message of hope and love, and yet this is not where Paul starts. Paul shares a message of hope about the creator God and about the the risen Savior, the risen Jesus, but he shares it in a way, in in a language that is familiar and in a way that is culturally sensitive. And I love that posture. Yes, we have something beautiful to share, and how we share it matters greatly. Continuing the story in verse 29, Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design or skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof to this, to everyone who raised him from the dead. So here Paul redefines the divine. He says the divine is not something 
like gold or silver or something made by human hands, human design or skill. The divine is not created, but rather the divine is the creator. And then he says, this God wants all people to repent. And to repent from what? From trying to create their own gods. He says, repent. And then verse 31, I know a lot of us would probably really just rather skip over this verse. It says, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. We don't like to talk about judgment, and I get it. It makes me uncomfortable as well. However, if we were to skip this part of Paul's message, we would miss the beautiful hope that Paul is sharing. Because here Paul is saying that God gave up of himself to bring about both justice and salvation at the same time. The same God who judges is the God who emptied himself. The same God who judges is the God who was the word made flesh that came to dwell among us, to be known by us. The same God who judges is the God who gave of himself, allowing himself to be crucified on the cross to atone for sin, to be able to offer forgiveness and justice at the same time, to be able to offer grace, a, a, a free, an undeserved, freely given grace, while remaining completely holy and just. The same God who judges is the risen Savior, with the one, the one with the power to heal and to restore that which is broken, even broken to the point of death. So the message isn't that God will, will judge. The message is that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn it, but to save the world through him. We have been offered life. We have been offered salvation. We have been offered love. We've been offered, we've been offered a relationship with the creator God. That is the message of hope. And then our story concludes in verse 32. It says, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. And others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council, and some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius. I practiced that, but I still don't have it. A member of the Areopagus, and also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. And I love the realistic picture that Paul that is painted here, of the response to Paul's message. Some sneered. Some said, no way. And others were intrigued. Yeah, I want to I hear more about that. And then still others believed and gave their life to Jesus. And I find that freeing for myself um, because it's my responsibility as a Jesus follower to witness to the hope that I found in Jesus. It's my responsibility to share that with the people I'm in contact with and share that in a loving way. But what they choose to do with that 
that's, that's on them. That's not, not on me. And so I find that very freeing that we see a multitude of responses here to Paul's message. So we've read through the story. We've talked about it. And I want to ask the question now. So how does this story shape our lives in faith? How does this story shape our lives in faith? And there's two primary ways. There's probably a multitude of things we could pull out of this. Two primary things that really um, stood out to me. First of all, I believe God is calling us to recognize idolatry in our own lives today and to reorient our hearts and minds to the creator, God. You know, in, in the context of this story, this belief system in Athens where there's all these gods and all these idols and they're sacrificing animals to them, like it seems so foreign to us. But I don't think that the concept of idolatry is foreign to our culture and into, into our lives. What does idolatry look like? Tim Keller in his book, Counterfeit Gods, defines an idol as this. Anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything that you seek to give that only God, anything that you seek to give you what only God can give. And, and he goes on to say that good things can become idols when, when we tr- turn a good thing into the ultimate thing. And that definition like hit me. Anything that's more important to me than God or, or that absorbs my heart and imagination, it was convicting. I mean, and it made me ask the question, so what is capturing my heart the most? What, what am I thinking about the most? What am, what am I turning to to give me peace and fulfillment? You know, there's so many things that we can turn to other than God. So many things. And some of them are destructive habits. And, you know, that lead to unhealthy dependencies and addictions and, and brokenness. And, and some of those are a little more easily identifiable. Sometimes, not always. Um, but then there are other things that are good things in life that we can take in place above God. Things that we can allow to control our lives or to dictate our worth or to determine how we make decisions and how we live and operate. Things like family. I love my family dearly, and I'm supposed to love my family dearly. But these are good things that sometimes we elevate to a position higher than God. Things like friends um, or success, doing well at our jobs. These are all good things. Recognition. Things like technology. These are things that are good in our life and appropriate. And yet sometimes we elevate them um, too much. Funny story. Uh, this week, I forget what night it was, but this week I was... Um, I'd, I'd gone through the day. It was a busy day. It was a great day, but I was feeling a little bit restless, you know. I'd put the kids to bed, and Micah was was doing something, and so he wasn't he wasn't around that evening, and and I just felt antsy. I felt restless, and I was, it was bedtime, but I didn't really want to go to bed. And so, what did I do? Well, I chose to go to bed and watch a Netflix show on my phone because I'm like, oh, I'll just fall asleep. 
to the Netflix show. And I did. It was a house show of some, some sort. And, uh, and the funny thing is in the middle of the night, I woke up and something woke me up and I was feeling unsettled, like something's not quite right here. And I realized with my eyes closed that I was like grabbing, clutching, holding on tightly to something. And it was, it wasn't a dream. It was real. And I open my eyes and I'm clutching my iPhone. I'm holding on so tightly to my phone that it woke me up. And I'd been studying this passage and I'm like, oh my goodness, come on, seriously? (laughs) But isn't it true that some of the things that we cling to can't fully satisfy us? So maybe, maybe that evening I could have spent some time in prayer instead of turning on a Netflix show to try to distract myself. Like, I don't know. I mean, maybe we cling to things and elevate them to such a level that is unhealthy. And so I don't think the question today is, are the things in my life good or bad? Um, I think the more appropriate questions are, Um, Where are we seeking meaning and purpose? Where are we seeking peace and fulfillment? Where are we um, turning to find joy in our lives? What is capturing our hearts the most? And I think in answering these questions honestly, God might reveal some idols in our lives. I love the words in this story that in God alone we live and move and breathe and have our being. God alone is the one who can satisfy our deepest longings because we were created in his image and we were created to seek a relationship with him. And part of the good, good, good news is that he is not far from any one of us. And all we have to do is reach out and he is there. So how does this story shape my life and faith? First, I think it calls us to recognize idolatry in our life today and to reorient ourselves to the creator God. Secondly, I think it calls us as a church to communicate the gospel, the good news of Jesus in culturally sensitive and relevant ways. To communicate the gospel in culturally sensitive and relevant ways. In this story, using Paul's example, first he went into Athens and he learned about Athens. He listened to the people. He walked around and learned from them. And then he started talking to all different kinds of people in that community. He did not attack, diminish, or belittle their beliefs, but rather he used familiar language and phrases to communicate the good news of Jesus. And so as Christians today, I believe we're called to communicate and engage our community in culturally sensitive and relevant ways. And and first and foremost, we must listen. We must listen well and listen to understand, not listen to form a reply or to listen so you know how to argue or push an agenda, but listen simply to understand people's perspective, to understand where they're at. And in the way we begin by listening, 
sets the tone of our conversations. If we can listen well, that will set the tone of our conversations. I would love for us to be a group of people that knows our community, that knows the different perspectives and the different things, um, hitting different people, to see all the different people in our community. So first we must listen. And then we need to communicate the message of hope found in Jesus. I mean, we have this precious gift. It is our responsibility to be a witness of it. and, And this message is one of good news, a gift we get to share that there is hope found in Jesus. We are a witness to the fact that God is near and that God created us and that God wants to be in relationship with all of humanity. And having listened well first, we can share that message in words that are familiar, in words that make sense, in our community. And then lastly, I think how we communicate this message matters greatly. It is a message of hope. It should be communicated with hope. Um, in First Peter chapter 3, verse 15, he says this, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. Always be prepared to share the hope you have. I mean, that's awesome. But do this with gentleness and respect. I saw a stat to, uh, this week that was interesting to me. It was talking about communication. Do you know that only 7% of what we communicate comes across via the spoken word? So if I'm communicating with you and you're getting all this information, only 7% of what you hear has to do with what I say. 93% of what I communicate has to do with my body language and with my tone of voice, with my facial expressions. That's 93% of what is heard. And so I think this is, this is really important. Communicate with gentleness and respect. Wouldn't it be awesome if Christians um, were known in our community as, you know, the, the gentle people, the respectful people who have this message of hope to share. Even if you didn't know much about Christians, but it's like, if, if Christians could just be known as, yeah, they're awesome to talk to. They're kind, they're gentle, they're respectful, they're, they're hopeful people. I think that's what we're supposed to be known as in our community. What if love always dominated our conversations with people. I wonder how that would change the Tri-Cities. I believe it can change the Tri-Cities. I believe that this is what God is calling us to do. The church sent as we engage, the ways in which we engage matters greatly, and we're to engage like Jesus. Let's pray. Dear God, we just thank you so much for for this story in scripture, God, that hopefully gets us thinking about you as our creator. 
Lord, you as the mighty God who wants to be in relationship with us. And God, we thank you for that. And God, we ask this week that you would open our eyes to see you, that you would open our eyes to see, God, if we've placed other things uh, above you. Lord, I pray that you would teach us to be Jesus followers who communicate a message of hope with gentleness and respect. Lord, that you would teach us to be people who know our community and love our community and that our words as well as our body language and the manner in which we speak would be a witness to you as a creator and as a risen savior. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we go out today, for this week, may we daily orient our lives around the Creator God. May we have eyes to see God in our workplaces, in our homes, in our schools, and in our networks. May we truly listen to the people we encounter in our community. And may we share the message of Jesus in a way that is perceived as hopeful and loving. Have a blessed week.